I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, book of 2 Samuel this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, as a church, over the last um, couple of weeks, we've been taking a break from our normal preaching through the Gospel of John, and we've been working our way, um, just kind of doing an overview series in light of Advent of the whole Bible. And so the first week I covered 92 chapters, and this uh, last week I covered like 150 chapters, and this week I lost track. So uh, what I, of how many chapters we're going to cover. But we're going to cover the period this morning of, of the, the kings. We're going to cover the period of, of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. The story of Scripture starts out in the... Um, it starts out in the book of Genesis, and it starts with God creating all things and, uh, and blessing mankind by giving them the commission to exercise dominion and to rule and reign over all things. And yet mankind fell in their, their sin, and, and ever since then, we've almost been trying to get back to Eden. We've been trying to get back to the garden. We've been, a, we've been trying to get back to um, the way things are supposed to, be, supposed to be, and in and of our own efforts, we've kind of failed in that effort. We've fallen flat on our face. We, we have not um, been able to accomplish uh, that. And uh, in, in our own efforts, we have not been able to, um, to reestablish the kingdom. And yet God in His kindness and God in His mercy uh, works to reestablish His kingdom. And He works to provide a seed, a, a line for His heirs. And He, he works to, um, to establish and maintain covenants. And so we have been tracing those three themes since the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis, kingdom, seed, and covenant. And we're going to continue to do so. Um, we're going to continue to do so this morning as we look at the period of the the kings. Now, I just have to warn you, um, because of how many books are in, are, are in this time period that we're going to talk about, we're we're not going to go into depth into most of them this morning. Uh, most of the and so, if you want to know more about this time period, I encourage you to look in your handout. Um, but the books of uh, some of the great wisdom literature, we're not going to spend as much time on this morning as just because we don't, we don't have time. If I could, I would just read from it, through it from beginning to end, but I don't think, uh, we, I don't think that would find approval with most of us. So, um, so for now, we're just going to start in 2 Samuel, and then we'll, we'll get moving. 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be a prince over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones over the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Father in heaven, one more time we ask that you would make your word clear to us, that you'd help us to see all of your glories, that you'd help us to understand with, um, with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width. Father, we praise you and we pray that even now through this time to today that we would uh, see your kingdom more clearly as a result of our time this morning. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. Three themes, kingdom, seed, and covenant that we're going to be tracing. Maybe you've heard this quote. It's often attributed to Albert Einstein, but um, uh, didn't it come from him, but we don't know who it came from. So it might have actually come from him. But uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and hoping for a different result, right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. We saw that last week in the, the period of the judges where uh, Israel kept falling into this cycle of sin, that God would uh, establish a judge to rule over his people Israel, and, and that that judge would die and they'd fall into apostasy, and, and then they would cry out to the Lord because oppressors would come over them, and, and the Lord would rescue them from their oppressors. And then as soon as that judge would die, um, they would fall back into apostasy. And they kept doing the same thing and hoping for a different result, hoping that this time it would really work, this time it would really take, and, and nothing. So we get to the end of the period of Judges where this cycle has just gotten worse and worse and it's kind of ended in civil war. It's dismembered one of the tribes of Israel. And, and, and there's this fear on the part of the Israelites that something worse might happen. And so... Um, Towards the end of the period, towards the end of the life of Samuel, the Israelites look at Samuel, who's the judge of the people, and they look at his sons, and they think, we really don't want your sons to rule over us. And so they come to Samuel, and they ask that Samuel would uh, make a king for them, that he would establish a king, that they could have a king like the other nations, and thus establishes the period of the, uh, the kings uh, in the life of the people of God. And so this period is kind of split into two. There's the united kingdom, and then there's the divided kingdom. The united kingdom and the divided kingdom. Uh, the united kingdom has three, really four, but three kings for all intents and purposes. Um, actually, really five, but anyways. Three kings, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so when they ask uh, Samuel to anoint a king for them, uh, Samuel goes where the Lord tells him, and the Lord picks out a tall, handsome warrior, um, looks like he could, you know, be a movie star kind of guy, and uh, and they and Samuel says this is what you wanted, and they they make him king, and he looks like he's a great choice, like he looks strong, he looks like he he can do what they need him to do, and there's even some promising signs, you know, he he def, uh, leads Israel in an early war in his reign, and they they uh, they they win uh, a, a key battle. And they save a, a, a whole settlement of God's people, and yet the, it's very clear before too long that uh, King Saul, and even at the beginning of his reign, is, is not the one that they want. That He's really not that much better than the, uh, than the judges. Um, they're really doing the same thing and hoping for a different result with Saul. And so uh, Saul is, a, uh, he, the first sign of trouble comes when he 
Uh, Samuel goes to anoint him, and he's hiding in the luggage. He's waiting at baggage check, hoping nobody will find him uh, when they're about to anoint him. And, and we see that uh, Saul continues to have trouble because God sends him to wipe out the people of the uh, Agagites who are, um, and the Amalekites who are, who are causing problems for God's people, and he won't wipe them all the way out. He, he tries to save, save some of the spoil for himself. He tries to retain some of the, their wealth for himself, and he's being disobedient to the word of the Lord. And we see that he also, um, there's another time where Israel's people are going to go out to battle, and they're going to go out to war, and, and uh, they're getting antsy because they would all start the war with a, with a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and then the people of Israel are wanting to go, they're wanting to go, and Saul takes it into his own hands, and, and he does the sacrifice which wasn't his to make. It was only supposed to be Samuel who was supposed to make the sacrifice. And because of this, the Lord takes away the kingdom of Saul and gives it to another. And the Lord sends Samuel out to this village out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere up in the county, and just there's no, nothing that really happening there. And he sends him to the house of this young man named Jesse. And Jesse has seven sons, and Jesse calls his sons in from the field, at least six of them. And each one will pass before Samuel, and God will say, not that one. Not that one, not that one, not that. And get all the way down to his youngest uh, his son. And, and, and Samuel says, none of, these are, none of these are who the Lord wants. Is there someone else? And Samuel says, well, I have this one guy. He's young, and he's kind of always playing on his harp. He's way out in the field. I didn't even bother to call him in. And Samuel says, well, call him in. And it turns out that this is the one that the Lord wants. This, this, child, this young man, uh, barely old enough to shave and... And just not really somebody who you would think of that would be the leader of God's people. And yet God anoints him and appoints him to be his king. And, and we're, we see in the next chapter in 1 Samuel 17 that uh, King David makes his debut where he defeats Goliath. And, and Saul begins to get jealous of this young man who's kind of rising through the ranks. And Saul begins to persecute him and David runs away. And there's kind of this ongoing period while Saul's kingdom is collapsing and crumbling and David is growing in strength and power until David uh, finally uh, is appointed king on Saul's death in Judah and eventually establishes his kingdom over all the people of God, and King David rules as a man uh, after God's own heart. And King David is loved, and this is the, the, whereas King Saul looked bad, looked great at first and ended terribly, it looks like King David is going to look kind of iffy at first, but going to be a great ruler. Um, and so, he's, he, in fact, he becomes such a great ruler that he he, he decides that he wants to build a temple for the Lord. And we see this in the chapter that we just read, that he wants to build a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord. And so he, um, he, uh, he, he comes to Jerusalem. He's going to build this house. He's going to build this temple. And uh, Nathan the prophet says, the Lord's with you. Just go and do it. And then Nathan gets a vision. And God says, no, I, I don't want David. There's various reasons. I don't want David to build a house for me. He's a man of blood, not a man of peace. Just like Melchizedek was a king of Salem, the king of peace, uh, so the king who will come and who will reign over God's people will always be a king of peace. And David is a man of war. He's a man of blood. He, he, he cannot be the king that, that will establish my kingdom. And nevertheless, the Lord blesses King David and gives him a covenant and establishes what's called the Davidic covenant, which is one of the most profound theological statements in the whole Old Testament that God would establish one of his own offspring, one of his own sons to, to be the king who would establish an everlasting kingdom. And even though his sons would be disobedient, and we'll get to that, the Lord promises that he will not lack one of his sons before him. And God gives him this great covenant, and he makes these promises to him that are just astounding and stunning. And it seems like, like 
Finally, the kingdom is inaugurated. Finally, the Lord is, the things are on the upswing. It seems like this period of chaos and instability that was here in the judges is gone. And then David is supposed to go out to war one day, and instead he goes up onto, onto the roof, and he sees a woman bathing. This happens not too much longer after the covenant. And he sees this woman bathing, and he brings Bathsheba back to his house, and they have an affair, and she gets pregnant. And so to hide, his, to hide her pregnancy and to hide what has happened, uh, King David has Uriah, her husband, come back from the battlefield, and, and he does some funny business, and Uriah's not given in, and so finally he has Uriah killed. And he marries Bathsheba and, uh, in order to hide his sin. And it looks like he's great until Nathan comes before him and outs him and calls him out and exposes his sin for the world to see. And so we see that King David is um, he's not the king that we would want him to be. He's not, he's not the king who can... He, it's, it, it seems like he's following the same pattern that we've seen throughout the whole Bible. Every time God makes a covenant, uh, mankind breaks that covenant. And King David, the man after God's own heart, probably the greatest leader that Israel has ever known, is no different. That once he gets the covenant, the first thing he does with it is he breaks it. And there's a whole period of chaos that follows, that follows the, 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 the death of Uriah, and, and, and that you can find that story more in 2 Samuel, and it all flows. But eventually, um, what we'll see come out of this union that he has with Bathsheba, he has another son named Solomon. And Solomon we'll talk about in a second. One other thing about King David that's important to know is David, one time he, he sends out his, his, ch- his chief army officer, his general, to go out into the whole land of Israel to take a census of, uh, of how big their army is. And he, uh, there's, there's good wisdom in that. There's sound wisdom in that, right? We all want to know how much resources we have, but David is doing it out of pride. And David wants to puff up his pride. He wants to puff up his ego. And, and, and God judges that. And God judges that. And David pleads for mercy. And as the, there, there's an angel of death that's going to come and wipe out Jerusalem. And David goes and he prays before the Lord. And the Lord spares Jerusalem. He spares the people of God from this disaster that David's pride has brought upon them. And it's on that spot where the angel was that God will build his temple for the people. Two important things about King David that are going to be real key as we're continuing our study of the kings. One, uh, David is a little bit driven by his own flesh and his own desires. He's a little bit driven by his own idols, his heart idols. And so we see here that many of David's descendants will follow that same pattern. They'll be driven by their own desires. But David is also a proud man. He's also a man who has an enormous self-confidence. He's a self-esteem success story. And that will also come back to bite his descendants, too. We'll see that. Well, anyways, David's son Solomon comes onto the throne, and David's son Solomon uh, is ruling over all this people, and the Lord comes to him at night and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And, uh, and, and instead of asking for fame or wealth or power, uh, he asks for wisdom. And God says, because you've asked for wisdom and not any of this other stuff, I'll give you this other stuff too, but I'm going to give you wisdom. And so he makes Solomon one of the wisest people. This is why the wisdom literature in Scripture was oft, uh, it comes from this period of, David, of King Solomon's reign. And so King Solomon is this wise king who's ruling over all things, and he builds the temple for the Lord, and he prays this amazing prayer in uh, 1 Kings 8 and 9 about the, the prayer of confession. And yet, and yet Solomon too, like his father David, begins to have his heart led astray. 
And he marries foreign, foreign women who drag his heart after their idols and after their gods. And King Solomon becomes an idolater and an adulterer and, and every, introduces every kind of wickedness into Jerusalem. And God, because of his wickedness, promises that he will take away his, the kingdom from his children. And kingdom seed in covenant. Uh, providentially, through this period of the United Kingdom, God works to establish his kingdom. Even though they wanted it out of arrogance and they wanted it to be like the other nations, God uses that sinful choice, that sinful decision to further his purpose. God also does it to, to bring to fore the seed, the offspring from which he's going to establish salvation and crush the head of the serpent. He, he, brings, he, he uses their dis, poor decision-making to uh, establish his choice and his purpose to, to put his anointed king in over the people of God. And, of course, covenant that God, through this whole period, works to give David and his sons after him the covenant that uh, the king who will rule and establish an everlasting kingdom will come from them. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. So even though when we get to the end of the United Kingdom, uh, this period looks like it's in trouble. It looks like this whole project is, is, is faltering. We've, we've seen that God in his providence and in his kindness has worked to give his chosen Messiah, who will come many years later, a royal pedigree so that he can establish this kingdom according to God's covenant. Well, we get into the period of the divided kingdom, and it starts with King Rehoboam, who's ruling over the people of God. And the people of God come to King Rehoboam and ask Rehoboam, hey, can you take it easy on us? Your dad, he pressed us hard. He taxed us a lot. He, he, he did all this stuff. Can you just lighten our load a little bit and we'll be loyal to you? And King Rehoboam listens to his, to his foolish young advisors, his college buddies, instead of listening to the, Lord, uh, listening to the wiser men who uh, his father had left behind him. And he says, he, he says I'm not going to do that. Uh, and the people of God rebel, and about two-thirds of the people of God go break away from the sons of David, and they establish their own kingdom known as Israel, whereas the, about the lower third of the people of God remain with the sons of God, and they establish the, what's called the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel uh, coexist about the same time, and they're often at war. They're often at war with one another. Here are all the kings that ruled over the nation, and I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about all of them, but here are all the kings who rule over the northern kingdom of Israel. We have Jeroboam I, we have Nadab, we have Basha, we have Elah, and Zimri, and Omri, and Ahab, and Ahaziah, and Jehoram, and Jehu, and Jehoahaz, and Jehoahash, and Jeroboam II, and Zechariah, and Shalom, and Manahan, and Pekahiah, and Pekah, and Hosea. Now, if you are looking for baby names, do not pick those ones, okay? Because every single one of these fools was an idolater, and they, they, they pursued after other gods, and they, they, they profaned the name of the Lord, and not a single one of these guys was faithful to the Lord. Not a single one of these was faithful to, to uh, establish the, the rules and the reign of God, that they, they followed after their own ways. And God was faithful to preserve within the northern kingdom a remnant of his own. And yet the, the heart of the people had gone astray. And, and even though God sent prophet after prophet, he sent Elijah and Elisha and he sent Hosea, they would not listen and so finally, God exiled them in about 724 B.C. And 
God sent them away and he scattered them to the four winds. He scattered them to the, among the Edomites for their disobedience. Now, the southern kingdom Judah lasts a little bit longer than the northern kingdom. And here are the names again. These are not great baby names. Just throwing them out there. Oh, well, some of them are okay, but most of them. Uh, these are the kings of the kingdom of Judah. Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Ahaziah, Athaliah, Jehoash, different one. Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, different names, and Zedekiah. Now, many of these were were like the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Many of these were also idolaters. Many of these also went after foreign gods. Many of these also pursued after different kings. Many of these were were wicked. And yet, some of these guys were genuinely God-fearing men who loved the Lord and did their best to follow after God. So that while most of this line were, were... were not that different than the northern kingdom. Many of these were, were godly, um, godly men who tried to be obedient. And yet, there's that problem of pride. There's that problem of pride, just like King David sent Joab out to perform this census and to, to try to record the, the might of the people of God so he could be very self-impressed. We see in the the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Judah, that this problem of pride, this problem of pride, just even in the good kings, seems like it's still there. Let me give you three. I don't have time to walk through all of these, their stories, but let me give you three stories that just kind of representative of, of, the, of the kingdom of Judah that show you what I'm talking about. The first is the king, um, King Uzziah. I always think Uzziah gets a bad rap because he's a godly man. He loves the Lord. He serves the Lord with most of his, his life, and he, he breaks down the high places. He's a, he's a good guy. And yet, like you remember how King Saul went to offer the sacrifice that wasn't his to offer? Well, Uzziah does the same thing. He enters into the Holy of Holies, the place where only the priests are supposed to go to try to offer the sacrifice. It wasn't his to offer. And he stretches out his hand to sprinkle the blood, and God strikes him with leprosy. And Uzziah ends his days in bitterness and in isolation because he would not repent and humble himself for what he'd done. Uzziah, even though he's a good, as as far as the kings of Judah go, he's pretty up there. He's still a broken man. He's still a proud man. And that pride is his downfall. Another story is King Hezekiah. That's an okay baby name, I guess. King Hezekiah is a... um, a genuinely God-fearing man. And you can read about his story in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles and the book of Isaiah. And uh, 2 Kings, or Hezekiah, he seems like he's trying to follow the Lord. And he sees the Lord just do this amazing thing by rescuing the people of Israel or the people of Judah from, from the Assyrians. And it just seems like Hezekiah is, is, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one from whom Emmanuel will come. Maybe he's the one who, who will establish the kingdom of God. And, and yet Hezekiah gets really sick. He gets really sick, and the Lord tells him, you better get your affairs in order because this is, this is not looking good. And Hezekiah mourns, and he prays that the Lord would heal him, and the Lord says, I'll, I'll give you a few more years. Well, in the meantime, news of his sickness had spread. It had spread quickly. 
And the king of Babylon sends these ambassadors, these envoys to, to give him a gift, to well wish, and to, um, to try to establish some influence with probably the next king. And, 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 and he, they come, and Hezekiah is alive and well. He's jumping around. He, he, looks, he looks like he's never been better. And Hezekiah shows, him, shows these messengers the wealth of all the kingdom. There's not a single piece of gold. There's not a single thing wrong. All the, he puts his best foot forward, uh, rolls out all the red carpets just to put on a show so that the people of, so that the people of uh, Babylon would be impressed with this mighty king, Hezekiah. And God sends Isaiah to him to say, what were you thinking? What is wrong with you? And because of his sin, because of his disobedience, God says, well, your, your children's children's children, they're going to be carted off into exile. And you know what Hezekiah's response is? Well, as long as there's peace in my time. Even the good kings of Judah have this pride. Uh, maybe, maybe the most stunning example of this is King Josiah. King Josiah comes to, uh, to reign at a young age, and he establishes his kingdom. And, and it seems like he's reading the, leading this great national reform movement. He's, he's purifying the worship of the people of God. They celebrate Passover. He's doing all these amazing things. He rediscovers the law. He has it read out. He, he, he breaks down the high places. He purifies the worship of the people of God. And it seems like that he's leading the kingdom through a national revitalization. And people begin to wonder, maybe he's the king that we're waiting for. Maybe he's the one who's going to establish this everlasting kingdom and king josiah seems like he's reigning and he's establishing this kingdom and then he gets this message from the king of egypt from pharaoh who says hey not a big deal but i have to go teach the king of assyria a lesson and i'm just going to send my army right by you don't need to worry about it. i just don't want you to get freaked out and josiah says not on my watch and he goes and he confronts him when the king of egypt had already passed outside of his own territory and josiah gets himself killed and they bring his body back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet weeps and mourns over his body. Even the good kings, even the good kings of Judah have this pride that it just seems like it's holding them back and holding the people of God back from all the blessings that he has for them. And it seems like it's it seems like the the people of Judah even at their best, are still not great. And Josiah's sons and his grandsons are, are, are not great rulers. They're not nearly as good as Josiah, and because of their foolishness, the Babylonians come, and the Babylonians come, and they besiege Jerusalem, and then they cart them off to exile, and then those who are left rise up, and they cart them off into exile, and those who are left rise up, and finally the Babylonians just come and flatten the place. And those who are left rise up again, and then they run away to Egypt. And they're, they're stubborn, and they're arrogant. And yet, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this, God is still working to establish his kingdom. You see, King Jehoiakim, not Jeho- Jehoiakim, I know that's what you guys are thinking. King Jehoiakim is taken into exile into the king of Babylon's court. And after his uncle goes off the deep end and rises up and rebels against the, his whole thing, uh, the king of Babylon raises up, raises up Jehoiakim before him and seats him at his table and gives him favor. So that even though the kingdom is lost, the king remains. And even though the kingdom seems like it's, it, that there's no recovering it, God's covenant still remains. And even though it seems like the line has been cut off, 
to God's purpose to establish a Messiah, a ruler who will reign, will not be stopped. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. God, even in the midst of the exile, even in the midst of their disobedience, is still working. He's still working behind the scenes to establish his kingdom, to establish his reign, because God's purpose to redeem his creation, God's purpose to crush the head of the serpent, God's purpose to defeat death and sin, God's purpose will not be stopped. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. And even though Israel kept doing the same thing and hoping for a different result, even though they're doing the same thing, they're committing the same stupid sins, they're, they're going after all these foreign gods, they're, they're still doing the exact same thing again and again and again, and they're hoping that it will turn out differently. In the midst of that foolish cycle and decision-making, God is still furthering his purpose of redemption. And we'll see that purpose of redemption, that purpose of salvation, continue to work its way out through the periods of exile and return next week. But for now, I want to give you some applications from this period. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to apply some of the lessons that we can learn from this period to us. Uh, and the first one is this. God's love for his people, God's love for his people is fierce and it cannot be stopped. God's love for his people is fierce and it cannot be stopped. Look at all the ways that God preserves his people through every up and down, through every trial and tribulation, that God's love for his people will not be stopped. And even, even despite their best efforts, even their, God is still making a way. One of the most beautiful stories to come out of this is the story of Hosea. That we can find you can find in the story of in the book of Hosea, the first three chapters. Uh, God calls Hosea, this prophet, this person who it's his job to proclaim the word of the Lord. He sends him and he says, Go marry this prostitute Gomer. So Hosea goes out and marries this prostitute Gomer, and Gomer begins to have these children, and it becomes apparent very quickly that they are not Hosea's. And Hosea and, and Gomer runs away and leaves, uh, leaves uh, Gomer runs away and leaves Hosea and and she gets herself sold into slavery, and God says, Hosea, go back and buy her. And Hosea goes back and, and buys her back and restores her and redeems her and brings her back. And God says, that's like my love for my people. That even when their own sin puts them into slavery, I'm going to come back and I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to save them. And even though this exile that's coming coming quickly seems like it's going to cut them off, I will not let that I will not let their own sins get the best of them. I will love them with that kind of love. God's love for his people is fierce and unstoppable. We should also learn from this that God's zeal for his holiness, God's zeal for his holiness and his name is equally fierce and equally unquenchable. God desires his own people to be holy and to put away their idols, and to put away their sin. And he gives them chance after chance after chance after chance, and they throw away every single chance, and they slap grace in the face. If you were God, wouldn't you have taken them into exile a long time ago? And God, in his mercy, is giving them chance, and he, he tries, but he cannot allow this injustice to stand. 
What kind of God would he be if he allowed men like Manasseh and Amos, these wicked men who would sacrifice their own children, what kind of God would he be if he didn't establish justice? God's zeal for his name and his holiness is equally unstoppable and equally unquenchable. And in this way, it points us forward to the apex of the story, to the climax of the story, to the cross of Christ, where his son would come as his love for us. And he would bear the penalty for for our sins. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Is that the God of the Old Testament is clearest in the New Testament. That on the cross we see all these things that have been building up come to a head. We see the love of God and the holiness of God meet and embrace on the cross. The, the, the period of the kings teaches us that, that God's love for his people is unstoppable and God's desire for holiness is equally unstoppable. And it seems like these two things cannot meet. And yet what we see on the cross is that it has been part of God's plan since the beginning. To out of his love atone for his people's sins and out of his kindness to redeem them from all their transgressions. Which brings me to my third application this morning. That none of us, none of us is beyond his redemption. None of us is beyond his redemption. One of the, my favorite stories from this time period, we talked about it in our small group this week, is the story of King Manasseh. Now, King Manasseh was a fool. He was wicked. He was cruel. He was into all kinds of dark witchcraft things. He was a violent man. Second Kings says that he filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood from one end to another. He was a wicked man. He burned his own children as sacrifice to the God of Moab. He's a wicked man, and so God carted him off and took him off into exile. And it says that he humbled himself there, and that God brought him back, and he put away all his idols. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of someone who is so dark, so wicked, so cruel, and yet God saved him despite himself. God redeemed him despite himself. That God would not allow his sins to get the best of him. And that God brought him back. And Manasseh does what the, the one thing that none of his other fellow kings of Judah do. He humbles himself before the Lord. And he finds redemption before the awesome holiness of God and the awesome love of God. And so I wonder if you have done that today. If you have humbled yourself before the love and the holiness of God today. If you have faced your own sins and the consequences of your sin and the penalty of your sin and the wrath of your sin and God's fierce love for his zeal and his his holiness, I wonder if you faced that and if you have found that burden to be lifted at the cross. If you've found the redemption that only God can give. You say, there's no way God would redeem me. And I would just say, have you been listening Did you hear the story of King David and the story of King Solomon and the story of King Manasseh? God redeems us and none of us are beyond his power to redeem. None of us have sinned so much that God would not take us back. 
If you have not found that redemption, I'd encourage you to do that even now. Uh, but number four, and I think it's important to also say this, sin, even subtle sins, even respectable sins, even sins that some people might think are an asset, they still have their consequences. Look at King Josiah. One of the, one of the, the great reformers of the people of God and somebody who maybe his, maybe his, maybe his, his the, the ways that he has extremes in his character, maybe some of his sin habits, would maybe his, his zeal and his impulse, maybe those were things and his decisiveness that people would have looked at and respected him for. And it got him killed. Sin, even subtle sin, even respectable sins, sin has its consequences. Which means, number five, that we all must check our hearts for pride. We all must check our hearts for pride so that we don't end up like King Josiah. So that we don't end up letting our impulse, letting our anger, letting, letting our pride, the, 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 letting our inability to absorb offenses go. We must check our heart for pride. Also, number six, we should check our heart for bitterness. Remember the story of King Uzziah who stretched out his hand and God struck him with leprosy and he ended his life in isolation and bitterness? And he, in the midst of that, what would you think is the logical thing to do? To turn to the Lord. And yet Uzziah never does that. He never about faces. He never repents. He never turns his face to God to find redemption. You know, it seems like that leprosy that God struck him with was extreme, doesn't it? But it was actually God's kindness meant to lead him to redemption. And he was too bitter to learn that lesson. We must check our hearts for bitterness. Also say number seven. We must check our hearts for lust. We must check our hearts for lust. So many of the problems of the kingdom of Judah can be traced back to and attributed to this error. You see that with David and Bathsheba. You see that with Solomon. You see that with all the rest of them. That there's this lust. They can't say no to themselves. They're just driven by their impulse. That they see something and they want it and they take it. And there's no self-control. If you think that your that kind of that kind of impulse, that kind of decisiveness, um, if you think that well, it it might have led Solomon to forfeit the kingdom, but it won't lead that to me. I'm just telling you that is not true. Any one of us are capable of throwing away our lives when, if we can't say no to our inclinations and no to our lust. Well, Christian, God wants us to control ourselves for our good because he loves us, because he wants the best for us. And I'll also say this, number eight. We must check our heart for selfishness. Do we really think that if Hezekiah at the end of his life had not 
had not said, Lord, forgive me for this sin, that the Lord wouldn't have forgiven him. And yet Hezekiah says, well, as long as there's peace in my time, as long as it affects somebody else and not me, it's not a very loving thing to do to your children. But we must check our heart for selfishness, for the inclination that looks to be satisfied for ourselves and not for others. Number nine, number nine, I would just say this. You might get the impression from this, from this overview and, is that God doesn't care about the little things of this world. And I just, I, I don't think that if you read through this, you can really take that away. Because what we, we see in the wisdom literature, what we see in the stories of, uh, of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, is that God cares a lot about the little things of this world. The God, God's eye is on the king, yes, but it's also on the peasant. God's eye is on the prince, but it's also on the pauper. The, 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 I, I wonder sometimes if the reason that we don't know the background to a lot of the Psalms is because if we would look at that background, we might think, that seems pretty irrational that you'd be that upset about that thing, David. And yet God cares about those little moments, those little situations in our lives. God cares about people who don't have power. God cares about people who the rest of the world turns aside from and, and looks over and doesn't care about. Think of the story of the, the Shunammite woman. Who, who was not able to have children and by God's grace was, was given to have a child. And that child dies and the Shunammite woman runs to Elisha. Now, Elisha is like an important person. Kings and generals come to him. Like he's at the center of world events. He brings kings to their knees. And yet God sees fit to raise, a, to, to give this grace and this kindness to a nobody through him. We don't even know her name. Maybe you're here and you feel like just a nobody. You feel like an outcast and a reject. And I just want you to know you too are not beyond God's gaze. And that he sees what you're going through. And he sees the brokenness and he sees it and he cares about you. And you are not too small to be beyond his care and concern. God cares about the little things. And I'd also say this, lastly, that God will redeem his people. God will redeem his people. If we learn nothing else from this summary of of the story of the kings, we ought to learn that God is faithful to redeem his people. And even when their own sins bring them to this place of brokenness, and even when their own sins bring them to exile, and it carves them thousands of miles away from home, God is faithful to redeem them and to preserve them and to keep them. And so if you've come here this week and you feel like there's a burden pressing your back down and you feel like the, uh, the ground underneath you is shaking and about to give way and the walls are tumbling in and the sky is falling down in pieces, I promise you, God will redeem his people. And he will be faithful to provide for them an Emmanuel, a God with us. And he will be faithful that he will not allow them to be taken by this world. He will redeem his people. And so it's in hope of that redemption that we will end our service singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Would you mind standing with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that 
even though mankind's apostasy and their sin lead them into problem after problem, that your purpose of salvation will not be thwarted. So, Father, even as we sing this hymn that's familiar to us, I pray that you would be faithful to give us the hope to which we've been called and that you would fill us with expectation and anticipation, not only as we look forward to the the advent of your Son and the story of Scripture, but as we look forward to his second coming where he will redeem all things and heaven and earth will be made new. And those things that are broken will be made whole. And those, those who feel guilty will be forgiven. And those who've lacked will be restored. And those that feel rejected will be redeemed. Father, we know that you are faithful to do this, and I pray that you would give us surety and hope of that promise. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.